Anyway, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I had the privilege of carrying out a mission trip in Zimbabwe. Um, uh, it was uh, we we worked with several orphanages there, uh, the church that I was with, and and um, also um, doing some outreach, connecting with um, local people, trying to uh, introduce them to Christ, and and um, as part of the trip, as as is often the case when you take a, a mission trip of this nature, uh, we got to go on a safari. And um, this safari was different than ones I'd been on previously. This one, we went to a lion preserve. And we, we showed up at this lion preserve, and, and I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting what I saw. Okay, when we got there, uh, the lions were caged to some extent, but they were caged with chain link fence. Okay, you know the chain link fence I'm talking about. It's about eight feet tall. It's a... It's a little diamond, you know, all over the place. Not generally recognized as the sturdiest of fences uh, that uh, you would want to necessarily put something of the nature of a lion behind. Um, and we were walking around. He, the guy was assuring us we're safe. The fence is going to hold all those other things. And and we, we got up close to a certain male lion, and, and I'm standing here, and, and he's, standing, he's standing about right there, Okay. And all that's between us is this fence. And, and I'm just going, oh, isn't he cute? And all of a sudden, he went, Rawr, and he jumped at the fence. And he hit that fence. And um, I kind of jumped back a lot. Um, the, the youth minister that was with us at the time, he, he got that really high-pitched laugh. <laughs> you know, he was scared. Um, <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever been... As scared as I was at that moment. I mean, it, and it just it passed really quick, but it was one of those moments in your life where you see everything. There are a few things in this world as fearsome as a lion. I mean, they are uh, the symbols of strength and authority and power in any culture that's interacted with them. Um, uh, there's a tribe in, in Africa, in fact, in, in order to be considered... Uh, a man, uh, young men had to go out and, and hunt a lion with nothing but a spear. That was their calling, their their movement to manhood, uh, as it were. So it's not surprising that in Scripture, when you start talking about power, when you start talking about authority, when you start talking about such uh, realities that the line is used for that imagery. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 49. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12 this morning. And we are in the midst of our examination of... Keep wanting to walk away. <laughs> we are in the midst of our examination of the promises of the Messiah as we move toward... The day of Christmas and our celebration of his coming, we want to see how uh, the Old Testament portrays him, how the Old Testament uh, characterizes this one who's going to come. And we've already seen uh, in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, he would be one of us. Uh, he, it will, he is fully human. Um, he has come to uh, represent us in many ways and to lead us to victory over sin. Uh, we saw that in Genesis 3 with him crushing the head of the serpent. And then last week we saw that he is 
he comes through the lens of covenant, and he is um, uh, comes for all of us that God's promise there to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 of the seed through whom all the world would be blessed uh, is in fact the same seed that uh, is reflected there in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But that leaves us with the question of how is he going to do that? How is he going to deliver humanity? How is he going to crush the head of the serpent? How is he going to connect with the world and, and all that, uh, all the needs that we have? Well, over the next couple of weeks, as we continue this journey through the Old Testament promises of the one who's coming, we'll see exactly how that plays out. And today we come to Genesis 49, which is a, a passage that deals with Jacob blessing his sons. Jacob is um, the grandson of Abram, the one uh, he is the, the recipient of the promise that God made to Abram there in Genesis 12. He is the, the, the one through whom the line is going to flow. And Twelve sons. And he comes to this point now where he's at the end of his life, and it is his job, it's his task to bless those sons, to pass on uh, to them the truths of who they are and who God uh, expects them to be and, and the role that they'll play in God's divine plan. Um, and so as he's bringing them in, in order of their age, uh, he starts with Reuben. Okay, we're good now. Okay, he starts with Reuben, and Reuben being the oldest. Uh, then he goes to Simeon and Levi, and, and each of these have in some way forfeited their right to be the, the avenue, the, the, the channel through whom... Um, God's blessing is going to flow. Okay, uh, Each of them had made serious enough mistakes in relationship to their father, in relationship to the world, that God has determined they're not, the, they're, they're not the avenue that I'm going to use. They're not the instrument that I'm going to use. And so in blessing them, he looks at the past. And he talks about their actions. He talks about their activity. He talks about their, their faults, but also kind of how that's going to carry forward. But then he comes to the fourth child. And his name is Judah. And this is what he has to say to Judah, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. The imagery here has moved from the past to the future. The, the, the concepts here are, are embedded in this reflection there in verse eight, or excuse me, verse nine, where Judah is portrayed as a young lion. 
And it's important for us to understand, as we start out here, kind of what I've already intimated, that the image, the lion imagery, is that of capability and power. It, it is an image that, that communicates power, which we've already suggested, which is present here. What's he say about the brothers? All your brothers, all the rest of the nation of Israel is what? They're going to bow down to you. Okay? You're going to have authority to direct the nation. You're going to have authority to direct our people. Through you, one is coming who will assert that authority. And it is present there because you also have this, uh, this capability, this influence that is present in who you are. This is the first time we hear that phrase, or we hear the, the illusion, the, the, the mention of the line of Judah, but it wouldn't be the last. Amos intimates as much uh, in his opening verses when he talks about how Yahweh roars from Zion. He roars from Jerusalem. But it's really in the book of Revelation that we see the most powerful expression of this imagery in, in Revelation chapter 5. There, John is in the midst of his vision uh, of heavenly things and how God is impacting and connecting with the world. And he sees this scroll that is the fate of humanity, sealed, protected, guided by God. And the question is put forward, who can open the seals. Who is worthy to break open these, these, these understandings, these visions, these, these prophecies of the future that will determine man's outcome? And the text says there's silence. Nobody responds. And John begins to weep. Because who is there to, to intervene? Who is there to help? Who is there to deliver? But then we read in verse 5, one of the elders, the image of elders standing around the throne, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He has a capability. No one in history possessed except for him. He has the power. He has not just the power, he has the capability because of what? Because of his righteousness and because he has conquered. He has smashed the serpent's head. And because he has smashed the serpent's head, he has the ability to control the destiny of humanity, to rule with authority and power. To see that truth is to see much of what the scriptures began to understand, how, what the Jews began to understand of the Messiah. We're all familiar with the, the images and the, the ideas of the Messiah coming in, conquering leading Israel to deliverance and freedom and those sorts of things. That was their expectation. 
when we get when we're in Easter, we always talk about how you know Palm Sunday. You know they're laying out the palms. Why? Because that's a reflection back of uh, the Maccabean era. John Hyrcanus with the image of palms and the fact that he had delivered Israel for a time from enslavement. The people saw Jesus as the new Messiah doing the same thing. He is the one who's going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome. And how that all shifted within a week. And we'll look at why that shifted in, in the sermons ahead. What, what happens in terms of Jesus' work and Jesus' ministry, we'll see that a little bit later even today. What happens to change the, the idea, the concept from this conquering warrior to something else? But at the very heart of it is the reality of Jesus as the conqueror. The one who has authority. The fact that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah is, is something that the gospel writer saw as very significant. That's why Luke, in giving us the genealogy of Jesus, gives us the genealogy of Mary. Since Jesus was born of a virgin, it's her genealogy that matters. Matthew, on the other hand, gives us the genealogy of Joseph, who for legal reasons, as his earthly father, would have been had to have been a, from the tribe of Judah as well. Both Mary and Joseph from the tribe of Judah. A reflection that, that goes right back here to this passage. Jesus as the Lion of Judah, the one who's coming. Now, another part of this passage that uh, that stands out in another important aspect of, of Judah's blessing here that uh, that comes out in way of a promise as well is the fact that the lion is a climactic figure. You have this, this passage here in verse 10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until, until what? I imagine if we went around the room and I asked for you all to read from your translations, we would have a variety of it there. Some of you would have until Shiloh comes in your translation. Uh, some of you would have until uh, he until it comes to him to whom it belongs, um, which is kind of what my translation has here, that until he whose right it is comes. And the problem, the difficulty here is that the word that's used in this text, the Hebrew word that's used here is just odd. It's just odd. It's, it's not a word that's really found any other place. Um, there is a city named Shiloh, so some have tried to compare it, but the spelling is very different than the city of Shiloh. And so others are dividing the word separately. Others are applying different vowels to the consonants that are there. In the end, we're not altogether 100% certain of exactly how to phrase the sentence. The Hebrew is just too convoluted here. But there is no doubt as to exactly what Judah or what Jacob means with the sentence. He's referring to the coming of the Messiah. There's no doubt. No matter how you translate it, whether it's Shiloh or to whom it belongs or any of the number, other numbers of ways that this sentence is translated, it always comes out with the same conclusion. He's talking about the Messiah coming. 
Where I want to focus, however, is not so much on the Shiloh part or until it comes or whatever. It's that, it's that word until. Okay. Where he says, the scepter shall not depart, the staff from between his feet, until. Now, again, Jacob here, in speaking this word, he uses a, a rare Hebrew construction. It's only really found four other times in the whole Old Testament. He adds another word there. And that addition of the word is important for us to understand. Because if that additional word's not there, and we simply read it as until, you get the idea that, okay, the, the, the scepter is going to stay with Judah until the Messiah comes, and then it's going to shift from Judah to the Messiah. There's almost a distinction between the Messiah and Judah that's present in that sentence. You understand what I'm saying there? Okay, in other words, if I say, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold the office of pastor here until the next person comes, then what? The next person's not me. It's, there, there's a separation there. There's a difference there. Okay, so if you read it that way, the scepter's not going to depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. It suggests what? That when the Messiah comes, the scepter is going to leave Judah. And it kind of breaks the promise, breaks the flow. But by adding that word there, that extra little word next to the word until, what Jacob says is that the Messiah, when he comes, he's the climactic event. I'm going to, another way of putting it would be something similar to the sentence, I'm going to keep working on this until I get it right. Okay? In other words, the until there suggests what? It's still part of it, but it's the culmination, it's the completion of it. That's what the word is meant to communicate. That's what the phrase here is saying. That the one who's coming, the Messiah who's coming, who is of the tribe of Judah, he's the climax. He's the goal. And that's part of the, the heart of what we're trying to say here with this whole series is that Jesus is the goal of all of these promises, of these reflections in the Old Testament. He's the climactic expression of them. It's not like he's divorced from them as if they're saying, this is going to happen out there, we're done, and then it happens. It's not just history beforehand, history carried out. I see something's going to happen. Okay, I'm done with this interaction, and then it happens. It's what? I'm expressing these truths within life, within my experience, within my encounters with God. That's what Israel is doing over and over and over again. And Jesus is the climax of all those encounters with God. He brings them all together. He is the end goal of history. He is the focal point of, of all of these things. Salvation history is not just a series of points of God doing things, salvation history is a journey through history of God doing miraculous and wonderful things that culminates in the most miraculous, the most wonderful thing when God comes to dwell amongst us. That's all wrapped up in that one little word, until. Well, it's two little words in this case, until. Now there's there's other ways that that plays out here. In verse 10, right in the middle there, he says, until the staff from between his feet. 
Now, that's an interesting expression. We can understand why he would say the scepter will not depart from Judah, but why does he throw staff in there? Why, why is that an additional image? The scepter makes sense. The king, the Messiah, staff. Well, the staff itself carries with it some ideas, some concepts. Obviously, uh, there's the shepherding image. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. Psalm 23. But there's something else it does. And this has to do directly with Judah. It's one of the few times in this whole prophecy, in this whole promise, that Jacob looks backwards. And where he's looking backwards is to Genesis 38. In Genesis 38, it's a story that's, that's interestingly, interestingly just kind of inserted into the, the Joseph narrative. Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's off there in Egypt now. And suddenly the scene switches back to Palestine, leaves Joseph for just a time, and focuses in on his brother Judah. And his brother Judah has a son who's married a woman named Tamar. And um, his son dies without leaving an heir. And I won't go through the whole story. It's It's fairly complicated one to explain in terms of its its cultural background and all that's going on there. But basically, Judah and his family are failing in their responsibility to the son who has passed on to carry on his line. And Tamar does a little trickery to get them to fulfill their responsibility, their role. And in verse 18, there it says, Judah's talking to this woman he doesn't know, just Tamar, she's disguised. He says, what should I give you? He asked, and she answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. It's the exact same word that's used uh, later on in chapter uh, 49. Um, later on, when uh, things come together and so forth, uh, she sends the staff and these other elements to Judah to uh, get him to recognize his responsibility. And he famously utters the phrase, and by the way, that's in verse 25. He famously utters the phrase after this, you are more righteous than I am. The whole passage is a reflection upon Judah's failure to acknowledge his responsibility to his family his connection with his family, and his responsibility to God's expectations. That's what the whole chapter is about. And so in chapter 49, when we come back to this, to this uh, identification, this blessing, as it were, he says what? A staff from between his feet shall not depart. This offspring of Judah is going to redeem Judah's sinfulness. He's going to rescue Judah's mistake, failing to recognize his responsibility to the greater population, to the greater people, offspring. The one who is to come is the climactic expression of Judah in that he will not make the mistakes that you made. He will be one of righteousness. He will be one of integrity. He will be one of 
power and authority. And so we see here in this in this verse that the scepter will be there until its climactic expression in the hands of the Messiah. And this Messiah will also bring about change and transformation. Now the third truth about the one who's coming that is present here is that the lion is a surprise. We've already noted kind of the surprise that, that Jacob skips the first three. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ignore tradition. I'm going to ignore uh, the fact that you're the oldest, and and by all cultural standards and so forth, you should get the right to rule and the lead. I'm going to ignore all those other things because of uh, failures, and because also this is where God is leading me, and I'm going to bless this fourth child to be the leader. We've already seen that, but there's other things that are surprising here. One of them is how Judah takes the place of Joseph. Remember the context here. Joseph had, this is the end really of the culmination of Joseph's story. Joseph's been sold into slavery in Egypt. While he's there in Egypt, he every place he's at, he prospers. Why? The text tells us he prospers because Yahweh's with him. And so he rises to authority in Potiphar's house. He rises to authority in the prison. And then he rises to authority in Pharaoh's house. And, and in doing so, he rescues not just Egypt, but really all of uh, the surrounding area through the interpretation of these dreams and the carrying out of God's plan to rescue uh, the people when the seven years of famine come. And because he's done this, Pharaoh has rewarded him. And he has said, bring all your family here. You all can settle in Goshen. It's our best uh, shepherding community. It's our best area for this sort of life and living. You bring everybody here. And everybody has left Canaan, the promised land, and they've come down and they've lived here in Egypt because Joseph has saved them. God has saved them through Joseph. Better way to put that. God has saved them through Joseph. Joseph has demonstrated himself to be exactly what God said he would be. We've already seen what? We've seen what? The brothers bow down before him when they got there to Egypt. They didn't even know it was Joseph. They're all like, we, we bow down. Okay. So the expectation would be what? As Jacob is blessing, he's going to give Joseph the authority. He's going to give Joseph's descendants all this power and this recognition and all these other things. But instead, Jake, uh, Judah replaces him. And he replaces him in the imagery when he says what? Your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. What was that? That's exactly what God said to Joseph. Now Jacob's saying it to Judah. And he's saying um, through you, you know, there's, there's going to be this rescue, this deliverance. That's a surprise. God in his wisdom, God in his grace, continuously and constantly does the unexpected. The mere fact that Jacob himself was the recipient of the line was significant. Why? Because Jacob wasn't the oldest either. His father, 
Isaac wasn't the oldest. The child of grace, the child of hope, the child of promise can only come from the barren womb that God reaches in and blesses. It's not our works, it's not our determination, it's not our cultural standards that determine where things go. It's God's grace that directs and guides humanity, directs and guides the future. And Judah highlights that. Judah emphasizes that. And by connecting him with Joseph, you see, again, this, this reflection of what Joseph has just said, what you intended for evil, God has determined to be good. He's done it once with Joseph. He's going to do it now with Timoth. Where Judah has failed, God's going to bring the blessing, the Messiah, the hope. But ultimately, this line is a surprise because of how it all plays out. Returning back to Revelation chapter 5, there's John. He's weeping. There's no hope. There's no future. There's no one worthy to take the scroll. There's no one worthy to answer the need. There's no one worthy to respond to the damage that humanity has done to creation, to reality. And then the elder steps in. Don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And the text suggests in, in hearing this in the sentence, in, in hearing this phrase, in hearing this, this word of hope, that John, he looks expectantly toward the throne. He looks expectantly toward this one who, who has conquered, this one who has won, this one who is powerful, this one who is mighty, this one who is, is all that we could hope for, this one who is the authority to do things no one else can. What's he see? He doesn't see a lion at all. He doesn't see the might, the authority, the power, and all those things. What's it say? Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. The lion of Judah the one who would conquer, the one who would deliver, would do that in an unexpected, surprising way. Not through battle. Not through exertion of his authority. But by dying on a cross. Dying in our place. Bringing victory in the most unexpected of ways. The Lion of Judah is truly powerful. He is one to be feared. As C.S. Lewis reflected, he's not safe. He calls us to Expectations beyond our capabilities. He calls us to lives beyond our own power. He calls us to victory when victory seems impossible. 
calls us to die. Why? Because that's how victory is won. He died on the cross to cover our sins. We die to ourselves to find victory and power in Him. As we come to this time of invitation today, my question for you is simply, have you found that victory? Have you found that deliverance? Have you found the power of the lion by identifying with the lamb? Jesus has offered this to us. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And as we reflected last week, that's everybody. Everybody's lost. Everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs an answer. Everybody needs a rescue. It's the Lion of Judah who's brought that victory. And he's done it by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. to give us abundant life that he promised he'd give us. And if you're here this morning and you've never experienced that, our invitation is quite simple. Surrender to him. It's not about a prayer that you pray. It's not about words that you say. It's about an attitude, a disposition, a submission to the only one who can save. A commitment to follow him He's not offering fire insurance. He's offering life transformation. And it's a good life. Even when difficulties come, when hardships set in, he's with us and he sees us through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. I thank you especially for your son, Jesus the lion who was conquered, the lamb who was slain. God, I pray that you help us to be responsive to your offer of salvation, deliverance, transformation. Help us, Lord, to experience what you alone can grant. Help us each to experience the surprise and the wonder of the lion of Judah and what he can do in a life. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never surrendered to you, never given their life to you, that you would lead them to that decision here this morning. But I also want to lift up myself and my brothers and sisters who have not been living a life of victory, not been living a life of power. We've sold ourselves short because we've sold you short. God, I pray that you help us to walk in the power and the authority of your word and your spirit flowing within us. We thank you. We give you this time. Now, so you use it for your glory and purposes. In Christ's name I pray.